Hello, and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. I'm Elle Rochford, amateur baker, professional sociologist. And I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender in Northeast Ohio. And this week, we are talking with Dr. Katrina Kimport about her new book, No Real Choice, and her most recent article with Crystal Littlejohn uh, called What Are We Forgetting? It's a fantastic interview. Uh, It's especially timely as we talk about... uh, what various states, in, in mostly in the American South, uh, have been doing to try and restrict um, legal access to abortion. Uh, but Dr. Kimport talks as well about some other th- things that uh, maybe you haven't thought of, certainly that I haven't thought of, that uh, impact people's decision-making and, and their power, I guess, to make their own choices. Yeah, I her work is incredibly important to understanding the current moment we're in uh, regarding reproductive rights and reproductive freedoms. So I really encourage our, our listeners to uh, check out her book, No Real Choice, and check out some of her other articles as well. Um, I, I really enjoy her writing. I was thrilled that she wanted to come on. She does some really important work. Yeah, this was this was one of the most interesting episodes. This is one of my favorite interviews that we've ever done. I, it's it's just fascinating stuff. Sorry, Tom. Sorry, <laughs> I said one of my favorites. <laughs> they they are all our favorites yeah. in in different ways. But the work that she does, and she's part of a cluster called Answer, uh, and we spell out the acronym of of what that is in the interview. Uh, but really, she and her colleagues are doing some groundbreaking stuff around reproductive rights. So it's it's a great listen uh, if you want to kind of get up to speed on what's going on. And the short answer is there's a lot going on. Yeah, you'll hear the interview in a second. What are we uh, What are we baking this week? So this week we made a chocolate opera cake. Yeah, it was it was delicious. So this one uh, was a struggle for me. We're gonna post all the progress pictures. But an opera cake essentially has seven layers, and the seven layers are made up of a cake, cake layers, ganache layers, and buttercream layers. And we had some difficulty with our cake layers. Yeah. Uh, so we made one big cake and cut it into very thin layers, and one of our layers tragically broke. Yes. Uh, and there was some miscommunication in the ordering of the layers. <laughs> I, I accidentally put the broken one on top uh, because I, in my head, thought, oh, it'll be fine. We're going to put the icing over that one. Um, but the thing about an I'm opera cake dumb. is that you top it with a mirror finish ganache. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want a perfectly smooth <laughs> surface. Which we did not have. It was, yeah. So that that's on me. That is 100% my fault. <laughs> it's a really fun learning process, I think. To mm-hmm. Honestly, it's nice to work with, I'm going to say, a novice baker. Sure. Uh, would that be fair? I think that's more than fair. Because um, there are things <laughs> that I forget because I've now been baking um, mm. for 20 years. I am that old uh, and I started that young. Maybe mm. I started young is the better way to say that. So... We we also had an issue with chocolate stirring uh, recently, where I gave you instructions to melt chocolate, uh, but I didn't tell him to stir the chocolate. And so I I think it is fun to like see baking through like new eyes, you know. Well, that that is very sweet. But yes, I uh, I'm dependent on instruction. <laughs> uh. But this cake was really fun to make. Uh, we made it for for Andrew's mother's birthday, and I spiraled out a little bit about mm-hmm. the crack in the middle of the cake and we're going to show you the pictures of the crack and then what we did to fix the crack uh because you will see it did turn out really beautifully it it, it turned did. out great it did no you saved that pretty well uh, my mom thought it was delicious uh, i thought it was delicious it was an amazing cake yeah I, I spiraled out pretty hard in the middle because the ganache had pulled apart the cracks so the cracks became 10 times more noticeable and I thought it was just totally ruined. And you would be amazed what you can fix with a chocolate butterfly or two. Mm-hmm. I think the number one skill in my decorating arsenal is making little chocolate butterflies. They are not terribly hard to do. And once you get good at them, they can save any baking project and make it look better. So I really, if there's one skill to master in your decorating toolkit, I would say it's the chocolate butterfly. 
It did. It looked really good. I got to agree with you. I got no. Um, the other thing we did for this cake is we soaked the layers in a coffee simple syrup. Mm-hmm. And the issue with the dark chocolate cake, because we did make it, uh, you know, we had a chocolate buttercream, we had a chocolate ganache, and then we had a dark chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. And so the coffee totally got lost. You could not taste the coffee, like you could not separate it from the chocolate. But what it did do is make the chocolate that much richer. So it was an incredibly rich chocolate cake. You just couldn't pick out the the coffee flavor. Yeah. So coffee does to chocolate what salt does to almost every other food, where it just, it's an enhancer. So whatever flavor you're tasting is just that much heightened. Um, So coffee does that for chocolate. It just tastes like a better chocolate or like a better quality chocolate. So putting a pinch of like instant coffee in your chocolate cake mix uh, or like uh, we added some coffee to our ganache. We infused the cream we used with, with coffee. Um, it just makes it that much like darker and richer of a chocolate. It was, it was very good. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing we did that you really can't skimp on when making this kind of layer cake is we had to chill each layer. So like everything went in the freezer before we cut it. And so that's what I would say. If you're going to try to make an opera cake, make it bigger than you want. Don't worry too much if it looks messy. Freeze the whole thing and then cut to the size that you want it to be. And then you get those beautifully sharp layers. And we will show you pictures of all of this on our Instagram, which is at Proofing and Lies on Instagram. Uh, We also have a Twitter at Proofing, capital L. Uh, Please like, follow, retweet, share, leave reviews. All of that helps boost our content. Yeah, and thank you as always for listening and uh, enjoy the show. All right, thank you everyone. Welcome back and thank you for joining us again. Uh, This is of course Proofing and Lies. This afternoon we're joined by Professor Katrina Kimport. She's the associate professor in the ANSWER program at the University of California, San Francisco. You know what, doctor, I'll let you tell us. What does ANSWER stand for? Sure. ANSWER stands for Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health. Excellent. And uh, the book you've got coming out, uh, it'll be out by the time this episode airs. It is called No Real Choice, How Culture and Politics Matter for Reproductive Autonomy. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to be here. Let's kick it off with, what is your book about? This book was the culmination of of several years of research, as I think probably is everybody's um, story of of a book. And um, what it started out being about is a little different maybe than what it turned out to be about. Uh, I think that the simplest way of thinking about it is that we have a story in our popular discourse that when somebody's pregnant, they have a choice. They can continue the pregnancy and potentially parent or place for adoption, or they can end the pregnancy through abortion. And and we have a lot of social narratives about that, that that's the choice people are facing when they have a pregnancy. And I was really curious about whether or not that was actually the case, because we know that there are lots of things that make choosing abortion very difficult. So I was interested in understanding um, what things maybe complicated our social narrative of how people make a pregnancy decision. And ultimately, what I found was that for a substantial part of our population, the question that they're actually answering isn't, do I want to continue or end a pregnancy? It's, can I choose abortion or not? And if that's the question they're facing, then a lot of the assumptions we have about how choice works and what reproductive autonomy people have, a lot of those assumptions don't hold. And so this book is an exploration about that about how how it comes to be that abortion becomes unchoosable. Uh, that is an incredibly timely book. Yeah. Uh, and I think a, a big reason we wanted to do this episode is to just get a sense of what is, what's going on in America around abortion, right? Which is a big question. And the answer today might be different by the time this episode airs. Sure. You know, and I think there's a way in which uh, the thing that will be consistent whenever this comes out and and maybe also why I have a, a like a long career trajectory is that there will be something of social and political, um, socially and politically contested about abortion, no matter when this episode drops. Right. Um, and uh, so the, the, the sort of short version, and this is building probably off of what a lot of people already know, um, but also trying to, to thicken that a little bit. The way that our, in the United States, the way that abortion 
um, legalization and access is organized is based on two Supreme Court decisions. So there's the Roe v. Wade decision that most people are very familiar with from 1973, um, which basically says that there's a right to an abortion before viability. And the line of viability has moved. This is the idea that the um, fetus could survive outside of the pregnant person's body. And now people generally say that that happens somewhere around 22 to 24 weeks into pregnancy. We can talk about the you know, pros and cons of using that as a framework, but that's what the legal framework is. And then in 1992, Casey versus Planned Parenthood added another layer onto that, uh, that structure by saying that the state, the individual state, can regulate access to abortion. But there are limits to that regulation, which are determined under an idea of undue burden. And then that kind of just was the way things were. And then um, starting in about 2010, a number of states decided to really test that idea of, let's see what the limits are of this undue burden standard. Um, and so this was about the same time as a number of states came under full Republican control, both legislative and executive, and then enabled the um, passage of a, of a large number of regulations of abortion. So policies that... Um, affect how and who and when um, people can get abortion care within that state. There are not all regulations are made equal. Some of them are a hassle and an annoyance, but maybe don't actually affect access to abortion or somebody's ability to obtain an abortion. And then there's some policies that matter pretty substantially, and the literature is very clear in demonstrating that. So anything that shuts down clinics um, that's going to affect access to abortion. If there is no place to get an abortion, it's a lot harder to have an abortion. And then uh, another really uh, policy that's very consequential is um, bans on public insurance coverage of abortion. Um, and that happens at the federal and state level. But anytime um, people who are financially struggling um, don't have insurance coverage for abortion, that makes abortion out of reach for many. And then, um, which maybe leads into the most immediate thing that many people are paying attention to right now in terms of abortion policy in the United States, are any bans that are based on gestational duration. And so most recently, um, people have been paying a lot of attention to a ban that went into effect in September, in, in September 1st in Texas that has the practical effect of banning abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy. And it's worth noting that when we say a pregnancy, that's based on last menstrual period. So if somebody is six weeks pregnant, they very likely wouldn't know that they were pregnant until at least four weeks of pregnancy. And, and maybe, you know, depending on their awareness and regularity of their menstrual cycle, they may not know until well after um, what we would call six weeks of pregnancy. So that is the, the immediate snapshot of what policy is happening. There is a Supreme Court case that's going to be um, arguments, oral arguments we heard in December on another case that's also a gestational duration ban. This one coming out of Mississippi at um, a 15-week ban. Um, both of these, based on current law, are totally unconstitutional in that they are regulations that um, apply prior to viability. Um, and we will see whether that fact of them being unconstitutional, how that plays out um, as these are these cases are heard. So that's the sort of policy piece. Um, if we wanted to talk about abortion, there's 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 more than just policy, right? I mean, we do get very caught up in it and thinking about it, but there are also other pieces, including you know the the social narratives around what it means to choose abortion, um, the embodied experience about abortion. So that there are lots of ways of kind of talking about it. This is definitely the um, the front page headline right now. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think to your point, and, and hopefully to kind of loop it back into the book, it sounds like when we when we do talk about abortion just in terms of policy, we are kind of leaving out the experiences of, of people who either have had abortions or, or are trying to have an abortion or who can't, right? And it seems like that last category is kind of who you're looking at specifically, right? People who maybe want to or are thinking about having an abortion, but for whatever reason can't. So could you um, talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, so it's not inconsistent with the idea of policy, of course, because sometimes you can't have an abortion because you can't afford it and your insurance won't cover it. Or you're past the gestation 
limit of the facility that's available to you, or you are in a job that won't permit you to take time off to do two visits in a state that has a mandated two visit requirement. We could go on and on. So policies definitely matter. And especially, you know, many of these states, we're talking about layer upon layer of policy. So maybe you could take two days off, but you can't take two days off and raise the money. And you can't take two days off and raise the money and travel two hours to get to the nearest provider and so on and so on. Those are absolutely ways that abortion becomes unchoosable for somebody. And that doesn't mean that they're interested in having a baby, right? That, that suddenly that, that those outcomes are not related, that not having an abortion doesn't mean that you want to continue the pregnancy and have a baby. What I was really interested in in the book project was thinking about how while there's this very important um, focus on the way that policy matters, there are other things that are happening in the way that people are making decisions and other ways that abortion can become unchoosable. Uh, and so what I found is that for another set of people, people who maybe don't even call a clinic to find out how much it would be, or even Google to figure out where they could go to a clinic who don't want to have a baby and yet don't feel they can choose, choose abortion. The, the social narratives we have about what it means to choose abortion can make abortion unchoosable. So for example, for somebody who understands the meaning of abortion to be, to be killing or to be against God's will, for somebody for whom that doesn't fit with their sense of self, it can become unchoosable. Right. That there or or for somebody who, you know, other other narratives that I found in my research that were very prevalent were ideas that choosing abortion was a sign of being irresponsible, um, that choosing abortion um, was likely to cause physical or mental health harms. And so that becomes hard to choose something when you believe that that's what it signifies or even would cause. Um, and again, this doesn't mean choosing to have a baby. It's just choosing, realizing that you can't choose abortion. You know, there's an important caveat, which is there are plenty of people who understand abortion to be killing and still make that choice, right? And so it's not that these are like narratives that are absolutely um, prevent anybody who, who thinks about them, but they can certainly change the way that that decision-making can occur, what those choices mean. And so what I found is that for many of the people that I interviewed, that was what made abortion unchoosable, regardless of what laws and policies in place might make actually, had they chosen to pursue an abortion, might have still made it impossible for them to enact their decision. And I think that when we, when we sort of thicken out that understanding, I think it points to both the more extensive effect of uh, the anti-abortion movement then is often acknowledged, right? That there's a, a sort of a, a cultural space that they've dominated. And I think it also points out to alternative ways of responding for people who are interested in ensuring reproductive autonomy, right? That like somebody without a law degree or the money to fight a case that you know, you'll be fighting it for five years in the court system as it weaves its way up to the Supreme Court. You can also, in um, in discourse, normalize abortion, offer other narratives for its meaning, and and those sorts of things. I think that those are some of the other pieces of of thinking more comprehensively, and maybe are ways that for some might feel overwhelming about how much change would be needed, but I think also can represent opportunities to think about. Uh, ways that people can make change that may not require a law degree or a really deep pockets, for example. I mean, as as someone who co-hosts a misinformation podcast, right? Uh, I think one of the most interesting parts of of growing up in a Catholic community was the amount of misinformation around the medical aspects of abortion. Um, mm. You know, the things we would hear in health classes that uh, abortion caused breast cancer, abortion will make you infertile, um, things that just were patently and, and provably untrue. So it's interesting for me to see now how, how storytelling and how addressing medical misinformation has become such a big part of reproductive justice. To tack onto that, I, I, 
I've noticed there's finally a shift from it. It sort of felt like the liberal, I don't know, contribution to the culture war around abortion kind of was always this like, well, yeah, we admit abortion's terrible, but right. Like it always started with the, you know, I, um, I forget if it was Bill Clinton's line, the like safe, legal and rare, right? Like even that is like, who cares if it's rare? And even arguably rare is a bad idea. I mean, if you wanted to think about if something is, if abortion were rare, first off, the likelihood of it becoming rare is rare. Um, but also that you have questions about provider skill, like access, and, and in and of itself, that framework absolutely is highly stigmatizing. Um, there's a fantastic article by Tracy Wheats. I, in a in a history journal that really takes that apart um, and challenges that that formation. You know, I, so you were talking about um, Ellie. You were talking about the idea of like the the sort of safety and the consequences of abortion. And and you know, when you talk about you know thinking about misinformation too, you have this this huge challenge of like saying a nuh-uh is always a hard position to be in. And, uh, but there's also tons of misinformation about who abortion patients are, like who has abortions. Um, one of the biggest ones that I find people are often like eyebrow raised really in response to is the fact that most people who have abortions already are parenting. And so that's another place where it's like in, if the social imaginary of who has abortions is a young young person who is not in a committed relationship, doesn't have any sort of financial structure, maybe doesn't know very much about sex or sexuality, is usually coded as white. And that person, if that's who the social imaginary is, is producing as the typical abortion patient, then your voter might think, oh, actually, you know, it might be common sense for us to require a, a so-called waiting period. Right. Uh, and so there are all these ways that like the, the misinformation really does have consequences. And, you know, oh, yeah, it makes sense to have a parental um, notification law. Right. Because we want that, you know, parents to be involved in that kind of thing. And so so, you know, this is the this is the places where uh, I think that the there has been. A lot of power in that misinformation and. I think that there there are there are certainly strategies for responding to it, and not very many of them have been like definitively successful, right? I mean, they, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of time. I'm always struck by how so many of these measures really attack kind of the autonomy, definitely, but even sort of the the intelligence of pregnant people, where you can't possibly understand the weight of the choice you're making. And yet that somehow doesn't correspond to, to caring and parenting a child. So there, there's so much going on with the way we talk about abortion. It's just so frustrating. There's a way that like the, the idea of abortion in our, in our social imagination has taken on this capacity that not that many things do. And so, first of all, there's this idea that um, abortion is a consequential moment. And so once you have that, then a lot of other things can get layered onto it. So you can then have people making arguments about something that they, that, you know, you, you can have people making arguments where the mech, the biological mechanism is never articulated. So why would an abortion cause a mental health outcome, a negative mental health outcome five years later? What would be the biological mechanism behind that? And the thing is, is that when it becomes the, the way that abortion operates in, in our social imaginary makes it available for that sort of causal assignment without people saying, really? Well, how would that connect? Right. Um, so it's sort of been removed from a lot of the fact checks that we might do anyway, that, you know, if somebody came to us and said, you know, I had knee surgery and then five years later, I found myself with a lot of anxiety. We wouldn't say, let's start checking to see whether that was related. Um, 
maybe it is. I don't know, right? You know, I mean, we could we could come up with maybe a biological mechanism, but there is something um, about the way that we construct abortion as a discrete thing that then has has consequences. It's a causal it's a causal event in people's lives, um, and that that's I mean, we find that in um, in research too, right? Like research often treats abortion as a thing to measure the the causes of or the effects of, and uh, and you know, there, there are, there's really great research that's come out of that framework. And also when that's the only way we have to understand it, then we get, it, it, it has the potential to invite a lot of the, the social assigning of negative outcomes to, to abortion itself. I wish I could recall the name of it, but there was an interesting study on mothers who regretted carrying their pregnancies to term. And the researchers talk about how difficult it was to, to get this data uh, because there's such a stigma for women to say, well, actually, like, I really wish I hadn't had kids. I don't think that really was for me. So I think it's interesting that we assign a lot of weight to abortion, but we don't apply the same weight to the health consequences of maybe having a child you didn't want to carry full term. Or the mental health consequences of having another child that you maybe can't afford to care for how you want it or just right like the the mental health outcomes of having a kid you didn't want in a world where you can't ever say to anyone that you didn't want the kid like that sounds more traumatizing than any possible medical procedure could ever be my colleague uh diana green foster um at ucsf uh was the principal investigator of the turnaway study which is um a study that recruited people who presented for abortion so people who wanted to end their pregnancy and it recruited people who presented just under the facility's gestational limit and just over and then followed them for five years with interviews every six months and couldn't answer a lot of the questions that you're raising, Andrew, about what are some of the effects of being denied a wanted abortion? Um, so we we know, we know that there's everything from our economically disadvantaged compared to those people who obtained an abortion, more physical health issues, more reliance on um, public services, less likely to have a subsequent wanted pregnancy, right? Whereas people who obtained the abortion were more likely to go on to have then uh, a pregnancy that they wanted to continue. Um, and, And at baseline, when they were recruited, there weren't significant differences between these two populations. I think there's also a piece there too in thinking about, you know, when you bring up people who express regret about a pregnancy they did continue and parented. And, you know, sometimes those were unwanted pregnancies. Sometimes they may be wanted pregnancies. And I think a lot of the way the literature's looked at that, which I think is really important, is to understand how we have unreasonable norms and expectations around what parenthood looks like and that you know it is basically impossible to absolutely meet them and that can really change how you emotionally experience and physically experience being a parent but those are those are really exciting studies to me because it points out the question we don't ever ask we ask the question all the time why did somebody have an abortion we never ask the question why did somebody have a kid now, I'll, I'll make an a important, important correction to that. We do ask that when we think that person is not a suitable parent. And that can include categories of people who use, drug and al- use drugs and alcohol, people who are homeless, people who are low income, very frequently people of color. There can be, there's a lot of sort of uh, scrutiny over people's parenting choices when they are not considered the, um, the ideal parent. Having said that, we have a, a body of literature often produced by people who are interested in ensuring access to abortion that really tries to spell out reasons for abortion. Reasons for abortion are absolutely valid for clinical care. It is important to understand 
where your patient is coming from. And there's a way that understanding reasons for abortion, if, if there's something that could happen maybe downstream that could, for people who wanted to help them be in a situation where they had different control over their fertility, right? At the same time, when we rely on the idea of reasons for abortion as a justification for access to abortion, that's inviting third parties into that decision. I mean, there is, there's an absolutely valid reason for abortion, which is that somebody doesn't want to be pregnant. And when we go farther than that, which we don't do when we're talking about people who continue their pregnancies, we're, we're exceptionalizing that decision. We're adding another level of scrutiny that normalizes the idea that other people get to participate or evaluate, or that some reasons are better than others. And, and you can see that in some of the media coverage, right? In these cases that people offer. So, you know, everybody has reasons for their choices. And when we move those into a space of like a justification that needs then somebody else's approval, then we're doing something different than we do with a lot of other health decisions that people engage in. Yeah, well, that most of, most of my clients are black. Most of them, well, all of them are poor. I'm a public defender. And so you're right to your point the the sort of the commentary that people feel empowered to make about these people's reproductive choices are stunning to me, including I had a, a uh, colleague who had an Irish Catholic member of our esteemed judiciary tell a, a black client of ours, you know, I'm generally against abortion, but I think it might be something you should consider, which is just a hell of a comment to make about another human being. And right, I think that's, I mean, just to your point, the only reason to have or, or not have a child is because you want to or don't. And anything beyond that leads to these absolutely ludicrous places uh, that someone could feel comfortable saying stuff like that in the year of our Lord 2021. Although, you know, that your example builds into another finding that I have in my book. So, uh, you know, of the people that I talked to, and I didn't describe the data set, but these were people who um, were, I recruited from prenatal care. So they were continuing their pregnancies and they reported that they were considering abortion for this pregnancy at some point, and now they were continuing it. So most of them were fit into what I was discussing earlier, that they were unable to choose abortion. And that's why they were continuing their pregnancy. But I had a small number out of my sample, um, who were continuing the pregnancy because they actually did want to have a baby. Like they had considered the abortion and then they decide they were making that, that choice we think people usually make. And many people probably do get to make between, do I want to have a baby or do I want to not have a baby? And they chose, I wanted to have a baby. And they were in that category of people who society generally thinks should not be a parent. And so what I found is that they, I would argue, strategically deployed those same social narratives about why abortion is bad to justify continuing their pregnancies. So when they told me like a very, when they told me the sort of, they walked me through their experience, they would offer along the way. And then I, you know, and then I wanted a baby or I wanted a baby if my boyfriend would be with me or would commit he did. So I want a baby, right? Like these sorts of things. But if I asked, when I asked about in a, in a sort of more shorthand way, or when they would offer a one sentence explanation, they would draw on these anti-abortion cultural narratives, right? So the person who yeah wanted, hoped her boyfriend would commit and they could co-parent and she had existing children, didn't want to um, be a, a single parent to another child. And um, when he said he was in, she was so excited. And then she says near the end, and she says, you know, and I think it was normal that I would think about abortion. Who doesn't do that? And then at the end of the interview, she says something along the lines of, but I could never have an abortion because it's killing. Um, and so what you have there, though, is you have somebody who, if they had to face that, that member of the judiciary who says, I don't believe in abortion, but... One response to that, since we don't have affirmative narratives around parenting for many socially marginalized groups, one response is to say, well, how could I choose abortion? It's a terrible thing. And so I, I thought it was really just interesting um, that 
you you got the sort of echoing and utilization of these narratives in um in a very different way than you know the, the narratives did not impact their pregnancy decision but they were really useful for um helping to explain why this was the path that they wanted because just saying they wanted to have a baby or another baby put them into situations where people questioned them. Well, I suppose it's nice that those narratives can be used in at least an almost empowering way, right? Mm-hmm. There's, it's almost gone full circle to, to being empowering, yeah. I guess. I mean, what we'd like is we would like to have a narrative that's affirmative of the choice somebody wants to make. So, you know, in addition to needing narratives that offer alternative meanings of, a, of abortion that are normalized as a normalized choice, destigmatized choice. We also need those narratives for people who want to parent, who are financially struggling, who are, you know, use drugs and alcohol or have used them, who are people of color. We need those narratives too. Well, I was going to say, doctor, it sounds like there's almost a pattern here of um, mostly white, mostly cis men telling mostly poor, mostly women um, what they shouldn't shouldn't do with their bodies, which I'm sure is a thing that is only true in this sense and has never happened in this country before. Uh. I think that like the one of the pieces happened. So that that is a, a fairly straightforward to evidence thesis about policy, right? We know who authors policies, we know who they impact. I think one of the other things that's interesting to to really contemplate is the way that some of the misinformation was so ubiquitous in people's lives. So one woman I interviewed who had lots of parts of her circumstances that meant she did not want to continue this pregnancy mentioned something to her mom. Her mom said, if you do that, you'll be infertile and you'll never be able to have a child. And she said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have a baby then, right? Like that, that was it to her. And you know, that's, that's her mom. That's a trusted person. And, you know, I followed up with, do you know anybody this happened to you? Does your mom know anybody this happened? You know, like, what are, what are the sources of this? And she was like, no, no, but it just makes sense to me. So there, there's some really interesting pieces. I think, I think there's also, there's a challenge. I think a lot of people would really like to figure out that kind of the single bullet theory of like, what is it? Why is this so prevalent? And there has been there has been work that really makes the case that sort of beliefs about irresponsible sexual behavior lead to uh, certain positions uh, on abortion, and and this is the um, Crystal Littlejohn and I um, do, did a review of the literature on abortion and sexuality, and we published it in the Journal of Sex Research, and and that's one of the findings we found that that's one way people talk about abortion and sexuality in, in research. That's one approach. And one of the things that's hard about uh, some of these frameworks is that they they end up leaving out the possibility of you know the third variable, right? So there's a um, I think very compelling book by I think it's Jennifer Holland. I might have the first name wrong, and um, who who makes I think a really strong case that the contemporary pro life movement is really rooted in a way it's rooted in its activity in an a claim for supporting fetal rights so that it can avoid having to engage in the history and ongoing legacy of racism, right? So you can ignore an obligation to engage in advocacy, anti-racist advocacy, by claiming to be engaged in the more important, quote unquote, civil rights action for fetal rights. And so, you know, in that logic, then actually what's over, what's what's happening across both pieces about sexuality and pieces about abortion is actually a, a thing about race, right? And so, um, you know, we know that a lot of the regulation of bodies is very targeted through into under uh, a certain, not just, not just regulating women's bodies, but regulating race and class through women's bodies. Well, that's, I mean, there is a good, Robert Evans does a good podcast uh, about um, Jerry Falwell, where he talks Mm -hmm. about how a lot of the religious right movement actually has its stars, uh, has its start 
in anti anti racist organizing, right? As as private religious schools were forced to be uh, integrated. And then it turns out that it got less popular to openly advocate against including black people and they needed something to hang their hat on. I don't really have a question. It's just wild how that happened, huh? Well, I think what that illustrates and and that's, that's absolutely true. You summarized it really concisely and it would have taken me far longer. So that was definitely a good choice there. But the um, I think what it also shows us is that this is a historically specific phenomenon. So as oppressive and ubiquitous or omnipresent, we feel like this logic of abortion, of ideology, it's not even half a century old, right? Thinking about the sort of genealogy of, of some of these frames is, is pretty fascinating. Uh, and then thinking also about Maybe, you know, if the takeaway is this is not always forever, I mean, even most the, I'm not going to get the dates exactly right, but um, while the Catholics were pretty clear that abortion was not acceptable under the Catholic religion, they didn't really invest in it until much later than anybody thinks. And many other denominations were either supportive of abortion or agnostic about it. It was really in that 1970s, the, that movement that you were alluding to, that that really took off, that there became such an association of Christian religion with opposition to abortion. There is something interesting about the timing where as laws relaxed around interracial marriages, as laws relaxed around same-sex sexual activities, as laws about segregation loosen up, there are fewer and fewer ways to criminalize sex and relationships and abortions really the last thing that, you, you know, I think if the Christian right suggested a law against premarital sex, right, that that would be panned. But you can still legislate against abortion, which has a similar effect of of penalizing you for having sexual relationships outside of what these groups would deem acceptable. I think there's also a piece that like, abortion itself sounds like something that's really easy to define, but it's, it's not, it's, it's fuzzy. There's, there's not one single medical procedure that is an abortion. There's, especially when you're getting later in pregnancy, there's a lot of fuzziness about whether or not something counts as an abortion or a stillbirth or right. I mean, the, the procedure in, in later pregnancy for an abortion is frequently an induction of labor, which is the same thing that you do to give birth. Earlier in pregnancy, common treatments for abortion are the same as miscarriage management treatments. So there's there's a, maybe this is why it's so available for multiple meanings and multiple uses, because in itself, there's an ambiguity around abortion. I think that's a good point and also sort of a, a terrifying one in one sense, which is that uh, alarmists and cynics like myself think the, the real target here might not even be Roe versus Wade. It might be Griswold versus Connecticut, which was uh, about whether the state could ban people from buying and selling contraceptives. And if you can't, if there's no hard line to draw as far as what an abortion is, I mean, is the pill abortion? Some people think it is. And I think certainly there are people who would like the state of Mississippi, for instance, to be able to tell you that it is. I think there's a, there's some, you know, birth control. Although when people talk about using birth control, they often, it's a shorthand for using the hormonal contraceptive pill. Birth control means not having a birth. And so as an umbrella category includes both contraception and abortion. And, and so there's, you know, this is something for the social movement scholars of the present and certainly of the future to really trace, I think, where where the line became, right? Like, I I think there's a lot of the history of the abortion rights movement of making concessions. And some would argue that a lot of those concessions were made because the abortion rights movement itself has a history of white supremacy and wasn't interested in interrogating it. So, for example, one of the, although we talk about all the restrictions that have come into place, the sort of the the first, the original restriction was the Hyde Amendment, which was a rider that's attached um, to the appropriations bill. So we're talking about like just a money bill 
and Congress that said no um, tax dollars are going to go to pay for abortions. And that then impacts anybody who's using um, public insurance. And it also affects people in the military. It affects people who get their health insurance um, through the government. Um, So people in the VA, that kind of thing. And the abortion rights movement didn't contest it, right? Like that, and didn't every single time it was up for a vote, right? So it wasn't like it was a one-time thing and then you forgot about it. It was like, it just became normal. And so one one way of understanding that is because the people who are on public insurance tend not to be the white liberal feminist that was the, the really were the leaders of the pro-choice movement in the 70s and 80s. And, and in, in many ways, the, the racism of the pro-choice movement, the failure to center the voices of people of color and specifically of Black women, that's the reason for the emergence of the reproductive justice movement. Um, that's where it was as a, as a response to a failure to be included there, um, people built their own frameworks. Those, I think, arguably, like the the reproductive justice framework designed and built and (laughs) worked on for now decades by Black women, um, that's what's resonating now. And because it insists that this is not a gender only or abortion only concern. I want to, I could talk about this for a very long time. I want to be mindful of your time. Well, and I feel like it would be apt that the the title of of your recent article is "What Are We Forgetting?" Uh, so, what what are we forgetting before we wrap up, or have we uh, left out anything that you'd like to circle back to? I'll, I'll say maybe you could start with what things I think aren't being forgotten and are doing well, and then sometimes it's harder to name the absences unless you're in an absence and you go, "Wait a minute, I wasn't named." So, so anybody who finds themselves in absence, keep doing that because that's that's really important. You know, I think that there's that there is a lot of good work from social movements researchers in thinking about abortion. Great work on from policy researchers, like law and society folks are really thinking in interesting comprehensive ways about abortion, public health folks. There's like growing engagement from people thinking about embodiment, which I'd love to see more of. Crystal and I in our article trying to make a case for embody a specific type of embodiment of sexual embodiment um, that I think that approaching thinking about abortion from a lens of sexual embodiment would be, I think, really rich and generative. There's some increasing work looking at racism and how that has played out in debates about abortion. Um, And then looking at sort of the pieces of medicalization, we're starting to really think about that medicalization and demedicalization right? Because, you know, honestly, abortion as a procedure is is really not very medically complex. So when you talk to, you know, OBGYNs, many of whom go into that field, that specialization, because you get to do some pretty cool, complex stuff, right? A C-section is, a, is major surgery, right? And, uh, you know, in comparison, abortion, particularly when you're talking about medication abortion, which is literally handing someone some pills, doesn't have the medical complexity to it. And so really thinking about, you know, the how, how what role medical professionals have played, need to play, you know, and maybe should play going forward. So I think, so I think there's some, some really neat stuff out there. I think that an area that I'm starting to, to work on more that um, I'm very excited about is thinking about um, abortion later in pregnancy. Later abortion generally kind of is used to describe abortions that take place 16 weeks or later. Um, I've been focusing specifically at the ones in the third trimester after 24 weeks. Um, and I think that this is a space that if we want to go to the sort of misinformation things or maybe a values clarification, people who typically would describe themselves as supportive of abortion rights are also typically very uncomfortable still with the idea of third trimester abortion. And Largely, that's because of huge amounts of misinformation about what it is, who is in those circumstances, et cetera. Well, that, that, yeah, that is fascinating. I wish, um, well, we'll have to have you back because I have a lot of <laughs> questions and stuff about that just to, you know, because I remember 
when there was the late term abortion ban, however many years ago that was, I remember basically everyone talking about it, like you're, you know, pulling a live infant out and like chopping mm. its head off was basically the like the image I think people had. And, and obviously that is not what's happening. <laughs> well, and there's a very good bit on on the TV show Veep where they're they're um, running for office and someone has said, you know, we have to give them a number. And so they're doing all this weird math and they have like different fruits out and they're waiting for someone else to announce first so that they can say like two days after that guy said that they're more progressive, but still not. Right. And so the way that people get so bizarrely like into parsing the exact day, Mm -hmm. right. That it's okay. And then not okay. is, Is very interesting to me in practice, of course, it's a day, okay and not okay, but that doesn't line up with, and therefore you cannot be pregnant because you're going to give birth. So if most people will say, let's say somebody says viability is the point at which you can't have an abortion after, it's not like then the next day you can go in and be like, okay, can I now have an induction of labor or an, a C-section? I just, I don't want to be pregnant. You said I can't have an abortion because this is a viable, you know, fetus. So how about you let me give birth? There's no OB who's going to do that. So I think there's also this interesting way we have in our social narratives, we have a a forced liminal space where abortion is not acceptable, but we also, it would be very unethical to induce labor. I mean, the viability is a, it does not mean a guarantee of physical and mental health or cognitive health. Babies born at 22 to 24 weeks need a lot of interventions for a long time, often for their lifetime. And, you know, babies develop differently. Fetuses develop differently. So, you know, there, there are lots of unknowns. And so no obstetrician is going to say, sure, let's go ahead. I would have given you abortion two days ago since I can't anymore. Now let's go ahead and, and give birth, you know? So, so I think there's an interesting thing. There's also that interesting question that when that thing is asked, this question about like, sort of what would be your date or in, in the beep example, you know, what, what are you going to offer? It's uh, it's always about some, you know, fictionalized pregnant person, right? It's not a real person and it's not usually the self, right? Like nobody's saying, well, if I were in that situation or if my relative were in that situation, I would insist that up to this day it was okay. And then I would say, no way, you know, these are all things that um, are, that disconnect between our, our social conversations and what we think are appropriate ones and who gets to weigh in on them and personal experiences and, and decisions and choices that have medical consequences that have emotional consequences that vary by person. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. Well, um, no, thank you so much for your time. Dr. Katrina Kimport, she's the associate professor in the ANSWER program at the University of California in San Francisco. The book is No Real Choice. Uh, By the time this episode airs, it will be on bookshelves. So go check it out. Doctor, do you have anything that you want to plug before we let you go? Um, Well, first off, thank you so much. This has been an absolute delight. Um, For anybody who's interested in more about uh, abortion and research on abortion, um, I would encourage you to go to the website of my research group. So that's answer-a-n-s-i-r-h.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter at answer, same spelling. Um, And please engage with us. Tell us what you think. Fantastic. Thank you so, so much for joining us. This has been wonderful.